All right, I invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke is in your New Testament, kind of the second half of the, of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So Luke is kind of a, a familiar passage for uh, the Christmas season. If you're just joining us, we've been working through uh, what we've called this series called The Mothers of Jesus, where we've just kind of let, like taken the genealogy that's in Matthew and looked at the five women that Matthew uh, specifically mentions, as well as the five women that Jesus uh, specifically picks to be a part of his family tree. And we just walked through uh, Genesis 38 and Tamar. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about Rahab out of the book of uh, Joshua. We talked about Ruth last week. And then we're skipping Bathsheba. She's in there. Uh, we talked about her uh, during the Life of David series. And today, most fittingly, we're talking about Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, out of Luke chapter 1. So, so yeah, some good stuff. And yeah, I recognize we have children in here. And so I'm going to be quick condensed, and so we can kind of uh, hopefully have some thoughts to think about and reflect upon over Christmas through the life of Mary. All right, so if you're able and you can join me, why don't you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to read verses 26 through 38. Hear the Word of the Lord. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God, and you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, "The, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is a a very joyful time of the year, and as well as kind of a chaotic, busy time of the year, and I'm sure a lot of us in this room have family plans for today and and a lot of stuff going on tomorrow. And so in the midst of that, God, can you just kind of calm us for a few minutes, help us kind of center in on you, and may we hear from your word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as most of you know, uh, we've We've got four boys. They range from 18 uh, to 9. And, and one of the things that, that we try to do is, is teach some manners, right? You know, if you're a parent here, you have a, a desire to teach some manners to your kids so that they won't go in public and, and sort of embarrass you. I mean, that's, that's kind of the goal pretty much. There's no real value in manners other than, like, you don't want mom and dad to be humiliated. Amen, mom and dad? And so some of you may have came from homes where manners were a big deal, Right? And you couldn't wait to get an adult and drink like a two liter of 
Coke like the guy on Elf, right? And just burp like he did for like an hour, which is one of my favorite scenes in Elf. It's just so awesome. Like you really want to do that because you came from a home that like it's really like manners were everything and you were going to go to hell if you burped at the table. Amen. So, well, you know, we didn't want to be that extreme. We wanted to try to find a middle ground. And I have to say, I don't know if we've ever found that middle ground. Uh, we still have a lot of flatulating and burping at our table. And so, and it probably doesn't help because I have a tendency to kind of laugh when it happens because it's pretty amazing what comes out of our boys' bodies. It's like, dude, that takes a gift, a talent, especially my nine-year-old who's dabbing. So, yes, <laughs> all right. But here's what I, you know, you know so, so what, what you try, one of the things you try to do as a parent is, is you try to teach them to say thank you when someone does something nice to them, like when they you know, treat them well, get them something, buy them something. Like you want that to instinctively come out. You don't want to have to always coach that. And so it's interesting, and, and, and I find it kind of surprising that during Christmas, you don't have to really teach that, usually, for the most part. So if you'll notice tomorrow morning when, you know, probably you notice this when you're with your kids or whatever, when they get up and they open a gift and they see who it's from, and it's a gift they want, right? It's not clothes or underwear or socks or whatever, but it's a gift they really want. Normally, their instinctive response is to yell and scream, right? Yes, yes, and then to say, thank you, mom, thanks for getting this. Thank you, dad, thanks for getting this. And if you're still, thank you, Santa, for getting, right? There's, there's this instinctive response that comes out of the present that they're unwrapping. They don't have to be necessarily coached to do that. It just comes naturally. And so here's what I, in, in light of that, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at the two responses that Mary gives us in these few verses. I, I believe there's three in the whole of chapter one. So she also writes a song, one of the most famous songs ever written uh, later on in the same chapter. Now we're not going to unpack that. You can go home and read through that. I feel like that's the third response, but I just want to f- spend in just a few minutes here, just unpacking the two responses that Mary lays before us here. And here's what I would, I would say. I would say that, um, that Christmas is not just something that invites a response. It's also something that demands a response. So it's not just an invitation to respond. It's a little bit more than that. I believe it demands a response because of what we're celebrating. And so some of you may be asking, okay, why, why do you say that? Why do you say it demands, not just invites a response? Well, look what's going on here in this, this chapter. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent an angel to Nazareth, which is a, a very small town in Galilee. It's just a no-nothing blimp on a map. You know, I, I reference it before to like Lebanon Junction. I grew up in Lebanon Junction, which is about 30 miles south of here. It has one little caution light. It got a McDonald's about 20 years ago when we thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. All right, so like, like it's a really small, know-nothing town. That's very similar to Nazareth and the reputation that it has here. Verse 27, so Gabriel came to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Depending on what kind of tradition you grew up in, you, you have trouble knowing what to do with Mary. So some of us may have grown up in a tradition where we almost kind of worship Mary, 
where Mary kind of becomes a God in and of herself and becomes kind of the mediator between God and man. Some of us grew up in a tradition where we don't really know what to do with her, and we're even nervous on mentioning her at Christmas time because we don't want her work to overshadow the work of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm hoping that we get somewhere in the middle. Mary is a significant figure in our faith, just as significant as, as Moses, as Abraham, as David. She was the mother of Jesus. Yes, God did not choose her because of some value and worth in her. All of this is the work of God's grace. However, he did choose her to be the one that would carry the God-man in her womb. He did choose her to be the one that would raise the Son of God. Just, just imagine the kind of like the enormity of the task that God is assigning to Mary. All of a sudden, in a moment, her life is radically changing. She's 14 years old, and she's going to be pregnant. And she's going to try to explain this to other people on how she became pregnant. 14. An expectant mom in a no-place town, unwed, and she's the one that God chose to raise the Son of God. So yeah, we don't worship Mary. Yeah, we reject the idea that that Mary was sinless. We reject the idea that Mary was a virgin for, forever. We reject the idea that Mary is the mediator between God and man, but we do not reject Mary as a person for us to look at as an example of faith, of trust in what God says. And we'll see that here in just a minute. So the angel comes, we pick it up again in verse 29. And this is what we see here. Mary was greatly troubled at this words and wondered. And that word wondered means she's kind of thinking and processing this event. She's going, what in the world is going on here? Is this an hallucination? Is this for real? This is not happening on a regular occurrence here. You got to remember this is after 400 years of silence where there's no prophet, no word from God. All of a sudden God breaks in and here's an angel. So she's like, she's kind of freaking out. Like what in the world is this? Just like what we would do. So what kind of greeting what this might be. And then we hear the angel, the Lord, say this in verse 30. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will be with a child, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And then what we see here in the next few verses is that this angel goes and explains and describes this child. This is going to be like no other child that's walked on the earth. This announcement of this baby is like no other announcement in all of history. And we notice, look what the angel says about Jesus, verse 32. He says, he will be great, very concise, but at the same time prophetic, at the same time with a whole lot of weight to that. So anything that you have gone out of your way to go see that seems amazing and great, remember Jesus created it by his words. He spoke it into existence. If you take all the greatest thinkers of all time and you put them in the same room with Jesus, they would shut their mouths at the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Yes, he will be great. Words fail to feel the greatness of his greatness. I know I'm using two words there to explain the same word. You're following me there. But words cannot express that. And that's why Gabriel keeps it very simple yet profound. This baby will be great. He goes on in the second half of that verse and says this, he will be called the son of the most high, which is basically saying that he is going to be God. Same kind of phrase that's used in verse 35 when 
the uh, angel says, the Son of God. He goes on and says that his work is going to be eternal. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. His work will be eternal. His reign will never end. He is reigning and ruling as we speak today. He is bringing history to its appointed end. This is the baby that you are going to give birth to. And all the angel is trying to express to Mary and to us is that this baby is going to inhabit two natures. He's going to be the God-man who is fully God and fully Jesus. That's that's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. Everything in Christianity hinges on this reality, hinges on this miracle. If there is no incarnation where God becomes man, fully God, fully man, then there's no Christianity. There's no Christmas. We're wasting our time here, right? But the reason why we celebrate Christmas is because God took on flesh. He became man, fully God, fully man. And that's not only the reason why we celebrate Christmas, it's why Christmas demands a response. It doesn't just invite a response, it demands one. Because if God has come in the flesh, then that makes demands on humanity's life. So let's look real quickly here. Look at these two responses of Mary. The first one is refreshing. She doubts. She doubts. Look what she says here. Verse 34, he How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? I love this. I love the the refreshing honesty that Mary expresses here because all of us would have said the same thing, right? None of us would have said, you know, our first response would not have been, okay, awesome. This is exactly what I've been praying for, that God would show up and make me pregnant without being married. This is exactly what I want, right? Right? No, that's not what she says. She says exactly what we would have said. How will this be? Like, I I can't even fathom this. You're asking me to believe that a virgin can get pregnant. Like, I don't understand that. Now, I get, like, how sometimes you open the womb of a barren woman. Like, I got those stories in the Old Testament. But a virgin conceiving, how will this be? I love that her first response is not, yes, let's go for it. Her first response is doubt. I need more information. I need help believing. I think this kind of doubt that we see here with Mary is kind of more of a, um, what we call a trustful doubt, more of an honest doubt. It's not where another kind of doubt that I don't feel like is really helpful is is more of a, a doubt that's rooted in disbelief, a doubt that's rooted in cynicism. It's not really wanting to know the truth. It's a way of kind of guarding ourselves from the truth because if the truth is really true, then it's going to actually make a claim on my life. And so I'm going to bring these doubts so that I can kind of sort of hide. That's not what is happening with Mary here. Mary is not saying, how can this happen? Mary is saying, how will this happen? She's not cutting off the conversation. She's saying, like, help me understand. Help my unbelief. I I want to believe, but man, this seems so far-fetched. Like, I I don't know about you, but there's been times... When I'm, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, there's been times even when I'm sitting down with my own kids and talking to them about the gospel, and as I am saying it, in my mind, I'm going, 
is this for real, right? Like, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe it, but at the same time, I'm trying to convince my kid to believe it. Now, maybe that's way too much for you right now, but I'm just trying to, like, help us understand that if you have not sat down and thought through the claims of Christianity, better yet, if you've not sat down and thought through what exactly we're celebrating at Christmas, and it doesn't, like, rock you, disturb you, and even, even stir up some doubts, then I'm not sure you've really grasped it. Mary did. And that's why she goes, how? How will this be? I mean, I've got all kinds of desires for our church, but I think one of the desires that I've I try to have since day one here. So you got, you got to remember this. I was just sitting down here thinking about this. This has nothing to do with my sermon. That's okay. This is extra. Um, I was sitting down there. Look, the last time that we had Christmas Eve on a Sunday, we had one service and half the people in this room were in attendance. It's crazy to see what God's done in six years. Absolutely blown away by his work that he's doing in our midst. So that, that's free, just kind of sharing what was going on in my heart as we're singing. All right, moving on here. So one of the many desires that I do have for our church is that people, individuals, men and women who are like Mary in this situation, who are doubting, who are struggling, who find it hard to believe what we sing and what we say and what we read here, that they would not just feel welcomed here, but they also feel like they belong here that there's, there's space for their doubts. And not just space, but that their, their interactions with the community, with our people, with our members, they feel patience. They don't feel like, man, the goal is to try to get you to say the right answers, but the goal is to be present with you and help you along with the struggles and the difficulties to believe what we're talking about because it is, it's hard. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural miracle of the Lord when we put and express faith in Christ. This is a difficult, difficult truth. And so I want to be a place where you feel like you belong here and that we as a body give space and patience. And if that is you in this room and you're one of those that are struggling, that when you see what we're talking about or even hear what we're talking about, like just doubt comes and all these questions, I just, hopefully this encourages you a little bit. You're in good company, right? Mary, Mary, her first response was doubt, not yes. Her first response, struggle. How will this be? This doesn't make sense to me. Hopefully you feel like you're in good company, and my desire for you is that you would continue to join us and travel with us. So that's the first response she gives. The second one which is where I believe God wants to move all of us in this room. And that second one is just simply surrender. There's a complete surrender of Mary here. And this is where God wants to take each of us in this room. Look what happens here, starting in verse 35. Look what he says. So this is in response to Mary's, how will this be? The angels answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay, yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. I have no more questions, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like, okay, that's not real helpful, is it? I mean, there's a chance that, that the way that he says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow you, 
That, that phrase there, overshadow you, is the same words that are used in Genesis 1 when it talks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the body, the waters. Like, that's the same idea there. So she may have remembered that phrase from Genesis chapter 1, but at the same time, it's like, I still don't get what you're talking about. Like, how, how, how is this going to happen? And then it's almost like Gabriel, you know, kind of catches on that, and he kind of gives something more tangible. Look what he says in verse 36. Even Elizabeth... You know, Elizabeth, Mary, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren in her sixth month, guess what? She's now pregnant, for nothing is impossible with God. And so look, 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 this is what's happening here. If you go home today and read all of Luke 1, what Luke is trying to do, there's, a, there's kind of like a parallel narrative. You got Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you got Mary, and they're, they're, he wants you to bring them together and look at the compare and contrast. So if you look at the first one with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah and says, look, Elizabeth, your wife, who is now old, past conceiving years, is going to have a child. And Zechariah doesn't say, how will this be? He doubts by saying, how can this be? A whole different way of doubting than what Mary's doing here. And so what, what God is asking Zechariah to believe is to believe in something that God has done before. Are you following me? So Zechariah would have been familiar with the Old Testament. All the women that were in the Old Testament, where they were beyond conceiving years because of their age, God was going to make their womb fertile and they were going to have a kid. There's stories that Zechariah can go back to and say, yeah, God has done this before. He can do it again. However, Mary was being asked to believe something that God has never done. There's not a story in Mary's tradition or in the Old Testament where God came to a virgin and caused her to conceive. There was nothing for Mary to go back onto. Mary had to believe that God was getting ready to do a brand new work, a work that had never, ever been done. And it's with that in mind that the response we see in verse 38 is profound. Because in essence, she doesn't get her answer. She doesn't get it. She doesn't know how this is going to happen. I have no story to lean on. But look what she says there in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be. If you got your own Bible, or you can use a little bulletin, underline, circle, may it be. To me, as you have said. May it be is surrender. And that's what Christianity is about. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's a surrender. It's may it be. I'm your servant. I find it interesting, and maybe you noticed it this earlier in that passage. Um, Gabriel is the one that's telling Mary what to name the child. You see that? Gabriel says you're going to name this child Jesus. Now, one of, the, one of the things as a parent that you love to do, especially if it's your first kid, is to name your kid, right? And you just, that, that's like a, a big part of the, the joy of having a kid. You, you, know, you make a list of names, and you, know, you kind of hold that, those names close to you because you don't want anybody else to know what the names are because they have a reaction to that name. It's like taints the name, you know what I'm saying? So like you keep it really tight. Some of you are laughing, thank you, because uh, you know what I'm talking about. And so, but in this one, the angel says, no, no, you, you are not going to name Jesus I am. 
you are going to hear what you're going to name him, and that's what you are to name him. Now, why? Why is that? Why is, he, why is he doing that? The reason why parents name their kids is because the parents are older and they're in charge, right? You know, I've not been in all the hospitals where all the births happen, but I'm going to make an assumption that there's never been a doctor that looks at the baby and go, hey, what do you want to be named? What's coming to your mind? What do you think, right? That's where we would get er and duh, right? That's... No, you, you always look to the mom or the dad or whatever's going on there and say, what's the baby's name? Because the parents are older, they're the ones in charge. Jesus is the first person ever born who is older than their parents and who's in charge. In essence, what the angel is saying here is, look, you don't manage him. You don't call the shots. He manages you. You're his servant. He's not ours. Look, anyone who's becoming or wanting to be a Christian, this is what it's about. It's about surrender. I've talked to many people who are not Christians, and you probably have had conversations similar to ones that I've had also, and, and it always comes you know, kind of back to this question, and I'm not trying to, if this is you, please hear me, I'm not trying to dismiss this question or make you feel stupid for having this question. I'm just, this is, I'm just wanting to push a little bit, but usually it's this, if I become a Christian, then will I have to stop blank, right? If I become a Christian, will I have to stop, you know, using foul language? Will I have to stop looking at porn? Will I have to break off this relationship? Will I have to stop living with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Will I have to Start going to church. It's usually the one I hear because church usually doesn't have a real good reputation uh, amongst people that are unchurched. And here's what I want to say to that is when, when you're asking that question, in essence, what you're wanting to do is manage God. You're wanting to kind of call the shots. You're wanting some aspect of where you have control. Like it's okay for God to have control in my life in these areas, but this one piece, I want to I keep. I want to manage. I want to be Lord over. Look, guys, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not a negotiation. Christianity is a surrender. It's may it be. I'm your servant. I do what you say. Somehow, We've become fooled to the illusion that, number one, we have control. And somehow we've bought into the lie that when I have control, things get better, right? If you live long enough and you have an honest reflection in your life, I think one of the assumptions you would make is you don't do a really good job managing your life. Usually the places that you find the most regret is when you made a boneheaded, stupid decision. And God's going, no, 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 man. There's a better way. There's a better way. Let me come and manage you. Let me come and be Lord over you. Christianity is not a negotiation. It's a surrender. It's may it be. And if we're really honest with that, if we're really thinking about all the implications, it's really scary, isn't it? That's really fearful to kind of surrender that kind of control to someone. And I would say the key to that kind of surrender, the key to where you get to that place is love. 
The only way that you will surrender your life that fully is when you're convinced of the person's love for you. I mean, think about it from this perspective. We've got two teenagers in our home, 18, and well, we've got one, one's in and out, uh, 18 and 16, because the oldest is in, in college, and this is not like, you know, Lyle's sermon on parenting. Please hear me on that one. But here's, and you guys know, everybody in this room, except for those that are younger, not teenagers, everybody's been a teenager, right? Like you've like you didn't skip those years, even though you may have wanted to, especially middle school. There's a way we can just got shoved in a barrel during middle school years and then get back out after that. Okay, so that wasn't very funny. Maybe it was a little bit. But, but here's the thing that you learn as you parent teenagers and as you were a teenager. There are going to be times when your parents are going to ask you to do things. They're going to give you boundaries. They're going to give you kind of guidelines. And teenage years produces kind of like a tension, a, a resistance to that. Not that even in the best of situations, it's not like they're wanting to, you know, kind of like dismiss your authority or disrespect you. It's part of growing up. It's part of like this, this independence that begins to happen in your home. And so there are times when they have a boundary or a rule or a guideline. And as a teenager, you're going, look, that doesn't make sense. Like, I, I, like, I hear you, but I don't like that. That's way too strict. That's way too, come on, I got to have a little freedom, right? I got to. Let my wings flap a little bit and everything will be all right. That's what I hear in my home all the time. Everything's going to be fine, Dad. And I'm like, dude, I'm 48. It isn't going to be fine, right? I know what happens usually. But, but here's the thing that I would say to that, all right? The way a teenager eventually submits to that, even if it's a rule, guideline, boundary, whatever you want to use, that that doesn't make sense, that they don't like, the way they get there is they're convinced of mom and dad's love for them. When they have experienced that mom and dad love them, that mom and dad want the best for them, that there's no one else on the face of this earth that wants their best, has their best interest in mind, doesn't happen all the time. Please hear me. I'm not trying to say everything's perfect. I'm just saying that this is kind of where it begins. That kind of surrender and submission is possible because they're convinced of mom and dad's love for them. You see it also in marriages. When marriages are healthy, there's a mutual submission. There's a mutual surrendering with the husband and wife, and that's all rooted and motivated in a kind of love for one another. Like there's a glad submission and a glad surrendering that I do to my wife, uh, with my wife Kathy because I'm convinced of her love for me. The 22 years of, of seeing and experiencing her love for me empowers me to surrender and submit to my wife. Well, think about all that teenagers, husband and wife, and multiply that by like a million when you think about God's love for you. When John 15 verse 13 says, this greater love has no one, greater love has no one than this, then he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus came into this world to lay down his life for you. No greater love is there no greater like you can trust him he has your best interest in mind you can surrender to that kind of love love what paul says in romans 5 8 but god demonstrates his own love how how do we see this how do we see his love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us, you want God in your life, then you have to let go. You really do. You can't manage him. He manages you. 
May it be. Now, maybe you're a Christian here, and I think you would agree to this, that, that, that this kind of surrendering is not a one-time event, right? It's continual, right? It's like, right, you feel like this is just the part of growing that God does in your life. And I talked last week about kind of living with honesty, right, before the Lord, because God wants a, a real relationship with you, and I made a comment about Carson Wentz, and I love him, so please don't take me like I didn't think he did a great job. He did a great job there, but I'm just trying to push us to see that sometimes we have trouble living with honesty before the Lord, and so, but I want to kind of circle back and just add a little nuance to that, because I feel like there are times when we as Christians get stuck, and the thing that we're being honest before the Lord is the thing that we've been honest before the Lord for years. It's like it's always the same issue, and I'm not Please hear me. I'm not trying to, you know, re, you know, kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth. I'm just trying to push this a little bit here that sometimes the reason why we're unwilling to kind of be done with this issue of honesty is because we're unwilling to surrender our want. Like this is a want. And what maybe God is wanting to do in this area is to get you to the place where you surrender it that you're, you're done, that, yeah, I, I don't understand how this is all going to work out, but may we be as Mary, may it be, we, we surrender. Like Mary didn't have a clue how this was all going to work out, and the favor of the Lord on Mary's life does not mean that Mary lived happy ever after. There was a life of suffering and joy, but there was a lot of suffering and pain, especially in a culture where they stoned women who got pregnant outside of wedlock. And then you try to explain that to your friend, like I said earlier. Oh, yeah, well, the Holy Spirit made me pregnant. Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? And all their engagement, Joseph's always looking like the one that took it for the team, right? There's nothing worse than watching your boy die. And have to bury him. Like that's the kind of suffering and pain. She didn't understand. She didn't get it. But she surrendered in the midst of her confusion. She said, may it be. And I'm just, I'm just trying to push us a little bit here as Christians. If, if you're bringing to the Lord the very same issue all the time, maybe what God wants you to do is surrender it. Maybe it's a want. And he's saying, look, that's not what I have for you. And I can't explain all of this, but trust me, I've got your best interests in mind. You will get it. You will understand. May it be, may that be our posture as Mary, that we would surrender whatever that want issue area is in our life. And hopefully some of us in this room are tracking with what I'm saying. May we be at a place where we say, let it be to me, God. Let it be to me. Do whatever you want to in my life because I trust you. So as we end the year, right, as we enter into Christmas, here's, here's a couple questions that, that I'm thinking through over the course of this week as we start a new year and, and encourage you to do the same. I've got them on the screen. If you want to take a picture of them, you can. If you want to write them down, you can. If you want to remember them, that'd be awesome too. So here's a couple questions, and these all relate to surrender. The first one is this. Are you willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do whether you like it or not. 
That's what surrender means. Am I willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do whether you like it or not? Number two, are you willing to trust God in anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? We're getting ready to enter 2018. And here's what I know about 2018. You have no idea what's going to happen. But God does. God does. And whatever he brings in my life, good or bad, will I trust him in it? Will I surrender? Will I say as Mary did, may it be I'm your servant. You're not mine. Let's pray together.